Great. Thank you. How everyone this morning? Excited? Yay! <laughs> uh, as Rob mentioned, my name is John. Um, filling in for Steve the past two weeks. Thank you for allowing me to do that. It's been a lot of work, but I've had a lot of fun. So, and hopefully some folks have uh, maybe learned a thing or two. Uh, all right, pop quiz time. Who remembers what happened on August 21st, 2017? Anybody? Let's ring a bell? No? Any eidetic memories out there? Okay, let me give you a hint. Okay, anybody remember now what happened? Anybody remember the total solar eclipse that was a couple years ago? I do. It was the last uh, solar eclipse that has been visible in the United States, um, or at least up where we live. And where we are up here, it was a total eclipse. I happened to be in Southern California on a work trip that day, so it was about 75% for me. Um, and I was at work, so I didn't get to see very much of it. But what I do remember is that this was uh, a pretty big deal, right? This is like a national thing. There was uh, just thousands of like YouTube videos on it, all kinds of news reports. And it was, it was kind of one of those rare events that really drew everyone together. Those seem to be uh, fewer and fewer these days. But we really all kind of bonded and came together over this event. And and if you, you know, watch some of the videos and reports, people were actually even like moved to tears watching this eclipse. Um, that's how emotional it was. But one thing that you might not know is that solar eclipses like this didn't always get such a positive perception or reception. And it used to be that if you saw an eclipse, um, the appropriate response was being terrified. For the ancient Greeks, an eclipse was a sign that the gods were angry. And the Vikings saw eclipses as a potential apocalypse. And I, I did a little bit of study, and in America, there was an eclipse in 1878, and many people that were in the path of totality who saw the entire eclipse, they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was returning, and it was Judgment Day, and it was just like pandemonium. And so, you know, we, we're educated, right, today, so we know better, right? You might look back at those kinds of people and say, oh, well, we kind of feel sad for them, or maybe we kind of laugh and chuckle like, yeah. But if you know your Bible, you can totally see why this reaction would have taken place. Uh, the Bible uses imagery like eclipses to describe what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. And so today we're going to take a look at that. Um, if you're new to us, if you're visiting, we're going through the Gospel of Mark in our sermon series. We're currently in Mark 13. Um, and as we continue to go through that chapter, we're going to see an example of uh, what you might call an eclipse and what Jesus says about that and his own return. So if you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn to Mark 13. Uh, the words will also be up on the screen, so you can look there as well. So we're going to be in Mark 13, verses 24 through 27 this morning. So let me read them to you, and then we'll dig in. So this is Jesus talking, and he says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Okay, so if you remember from last week, if you were here, you, uh, I said that we were going to utilize a, a mental framework to help us understand what Jesus is talking about uh, in this section. 
And I, I mentioned um, the one that I suggested using was uh, that of a runner getting ready to run a race. And of course, if you've ever been in a race or been at a race, you know that what do you say before a race? Ready, set, go. And so uh, that's the mental framework. There's a picture of the fastest man in the world to remind us. So as a runner, you walk up to the line, you tow the line, the gun goes off, and you start to go. So last week, we talked about the ready part. And we talked about how we need to be on guard as a Christian. This is what Jesus tells us, especially as it relates to the end times and the Antichrist. And we talked about what, what those things were and what they meant and how to do that get ready part. So today, we're going to look at the get set and the go parts of Jesus' words. All right, so let's talk about the get set. So Jesus starts out this section, Mark uh, 13, verse 24, and he says, In those days after that tribulation. So last week we briefly touched on the tribulation and, and uh, we saw that much of Jesus' words in the, in the previous section centered on the destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70, but then how that also uh, in turn references another greater tribulation, which is still yet to come, and that's what we would call the end times. And so we see that these events in AD 70 foreshadow what's going to happen one day. And so in verse 24, when Jesus says, okay, after that tribulation, what he's talking about is the great tribulation, the one that is still yet to come. So he says, after this great tribulation in the end times, uh, there's going to be this series of signs or indications that he is about to appear. And then he couches them in these astronomical terms. He says, okay, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers in heaven will be shaken. Okay, so the question is, what does that mean? Is Jesus speaking literally? Will the sun actually be darkened? Will it be like some kind of mega eclipse? Will the stars actually fall out of the sky? Um, And if that really happens, I think that would be a very obvious and noticeable sign that something is up. This is not right. And truth be told, you know, God is the creator of the universe. So if he wants to have those things literally take place, um, I'm not going to tell him no. And I think he could probably figure out a way to do that. But what I think is happening is that there's more going on here than, than just a, a literal interpretation, if you will. And the reason I say that is because Jesus is yet again, as he so often does, referring us back to the Old Testament. Um, And this is really key. What I I want to get across, if you don't get anything else from today and last week, I hope you get across this. And that's, if you want to understand eschatology in the New Testament, you have got to go back to the Old Testament because that's where they're pulling about 99% of the stuff from. Uh, The book of Revelation, for example, if you've read that book, you know it is just filled with allusions to the Old Testament from from 1-1 to the end of the book, chapter 22. And last week we talked about Jesus, or, or we saw Jesus talk about the abomination of desolation, uh, which he took straight out of Daniel chapter 9. Um, so the question is, okay, well, where is Jesus pulling from now? And as it turns out, there's this, this, this theme of this imagery of God darkening the sun and the moon and the stars. And I found at least a half a dozen places where the Old Testament brings up this imagery. And this actually helps us out because when we want to investigate what it means, we have some help. So I'm going to look at a couple of these very briefly, about three or four different scriptures, and we're going to draw out some themes, and it's going to help us understand the symbolism, okay? So the first theme we want to look at 
is how these images speak to God's immense power and his coming judgment. So I'm going to pull from a passage in Isaiah for this. This is Isaiah 13, and the prophet is speaking here, and he says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. So there's our themes right there. I will punish the world for its evil and, I, and the wicked for their iniquity. And so this is what God is, was telling Isaiah. And so Isaiah, he's, he's describing the day of the Lord in this passage. And for the Hebrews, for the ancient Israelites, the, the day of the Lord was a day of God's judgment and it was not something to look forward to. This is really about destruction. And, and, and a part of that destruction involves blotting out the sun and the moon and the stars. And so what you have here is Isaiah is portraying God as filled with wrath, ready to punish evil, and God is so powerful that not even the heavenly bodies can withstand it. And so these signs in Isaiah, they speak to this coming judgment, and they speak to the power of God that he will ex- as he executes this judgment. So that's one theme. So there's a second theme that emerges from this imagery, and that's this idea of Yahweh, God, destroying all of the false gods. I'm going to take us to Exodus 22 to, to illustrate this. Actually, I'm going to take us to Exodus 10. My apologies. So then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. All right, this is pretty cool, what I'm about to say, so... Uh, get ready. So in the book of Exodus, God sends plagues to Egypt, right? He sends ten plagues. And if you're familiar enough with the story, which most of us probably are, you know there's ten plagues and they culminate with the death of the firstborn son. But the ninth plague was the plague of darkness, and that's what these couple of verses reference. Now, have you ever wondered why God chose the plague of darkness as one of the plagues? Now, I have to admit, I hadn't really thought about it much. I kind of just accepted it. I was like, oh yeah, darkness, okay. But as I was preparing for the sermon, I, I kind of looked into it, and what I discovered was that the Egyptians during this time period worshipped the god Amun-Re, and he was the sun god. Oh, well, that's interesting. So if you worship the sun god, and then Yahweh God brings darkness over the land for three days, what does that tell you? Yahweh is bigger than your God. And it wasn't just the sun god that the Egyptians worshipped. They also had other deities for the moon and the sky and the stars and so on. And it turns out this is a pretty prevalent widespread belief in the ancient Near East. So when God is spoken of as darkening these heavenly bodies, there's this connection with the pagan gods. So on the day of the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God who has ultimate power, He's going to destroy, he's going to take down these false gods. So there's that imagery at work as well. Okay, so you've got this imagery of God's power and his coming judgment. And you've got God and his ability to overpower every other so-called God in the universe. But it actually doesn't even stop there. There's still another idea that I think comes across with, with these astronomical signs. And it's the idea that 
basically, when God comes again, when Jesus comes, these, these, these heavenly bodies are just no longer necessary. Okay, what do I mean by that? I'm going to take us back to Isaiah and show you. So in Isaiah 60, we read that uh, then the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Now, if you're familiar with Revelation, uh, towards the end when, when John talks about this vision of the new heavens and the new earth, you see that in the new Jerusalem, he writes, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and it's a lamp, is the lamb. I don't know, I just thought this was really cool, right? So when the new heavens and the new earth are established, there's no longer any need for the sun and the moon and the stars, because God himself provides the light that we need to live by. And so we've got these, these themes, these themes of God uh, you know, causing the sun and the moon to go dark and the stars to fall and the heavens to be shaken. They, they show his power. They show that he's going to take out the lesser gods. And they show that ultimately he just doesn't need them. They fulfilled their function. And then we find out that, guess what? They were ultimately a substitute for who the real light is. So the question then is, how do you tie all these ideas together? What do you do with them? And here's how one commentator I read puts it. I really like how he sums it up. He said, There is no security, no firm ground to stand on, nothing in the universe to depend on except God himself. The rest of of creation will collapse when Christ returns. Okay, so the question then is, what will that look like? And I have to admit that I don't know what that will look like, and I'm pretty sure no one else does either, at least as far as the details go. But if I had to sum up what we do know from the biblical account, this is what I would say. In the end times, after that tribulation, there will be global catastrophes, and it will portend even greater trouble for those living on the earth, and people will be very afraid. And the universe itself will appear to about to be break up, Um, you might say that it will literally be an earth-shattering time. And when this happens, Jesus tells us, when that happens, you know that the end is very near. So that's the whole idea of our get-set moment. Like, get set, because it's coming. All right, so now let's talk about this this whole go part, the final part. So we're going to go back to Mark 13, we're going to go back to Jesus' words, and we're going to pick up in verse 26, where he says, and then, after these things we've just talked about, after these heavenly bodies fall, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. All right, so Jesus says that after the tribulation happens, after these signs and wonders occur, the Son of Man will come in the clouds. Okay, if you didn't know... The Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite ways to refer to himself. All throughout the Gospels, you'll hear him talking about himself as the Son of Man. Now, where do you suppose he got this title from? If you're thinking in your head, the Old Testament, congratulations, you're paying attention. He did get it from the Old Testament. And specifically, he found it in Daniel chapter 7. And I want to take a minute to unpack this a little bit. 
I want to show you what Daniel says about the Son of Man. So Daniel here in chapter 7 is having a vision. And he says, starting in verse 13, that I saw the night in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so here's Daniel. He's having a vision. He's, he's, he's able to see into heaven. And he sees that one like a son of man was brought before the throne of God. And so this, this person has similarities with human beings, uh, which is kind of what the title the son of man implies. And in fact, before Daniel's time, this term, the son of man, was, was really just a way of saying a, a, person, a human being. However, here Daniel takes that idea and, he, and he, he modifies it. He adds something to it. He says this isn't just a human being. This person is coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, so what does that mean? Well, when you go back and do your research, you learn that the clouds of heaven, that describes how God comes to earth. Think about it. Think back to the Exodus story. When the Israelites are leaving Egypt, how does God show himself during the daytime? The pillar of clouds. And then they set up the tents where they're going to uh, you know, worship God and come to meet him. And how does God appear in the tent? In a cloud. And then Moses goes up on Mount Sinai at a certain point to receive the Ten Commandments and, and other instructions from God. And what do we learn? We learn that the whole mountain was covered by a cloud. Do you see the, the trend here? So this son of man that Daniel sees is, is a human being in some ways because he's a son of man, but he's also a God, you know, like God in some ways because he's coming on these clouds. And so when Jesus refers to himself as a son of man, it's in this context and he's showing and he's saying that he is both human and divine. And by Jesus' time, this idea of son of man even had gone further and was really a messianic term. And so... Jesus is, again, telling people that, look, I'm the Christ. I am the divine man. So that's this idea of son of man. But then, look at verse 14, and God does something else. God says, or it says that God gives the son of man dominion. He gives him rule and authority over all people. So when Jesus talks about the son of man coming on the clouds, he's focusing on his ultimate power and his glory, or on a word, his authority. So Jesus is going to come down. He's going to come down from heaven to do what is rightfully within his jurisdiction to do. And what is that? Well, within his authority, he's going to send his angels all over the world to gather the elect. And that's an event that we would call today the rapture. Okay, I'm not going to go into great detail about the rapture because that is a whole other sermon unto itself and I, I think we all probably don't want to stay for two sermons. Basically, though, what we do know about this time, just at a Reader's Digest kind of version, is that that's when the, our, we who are followers of Christ will finally and fully be called to Jesus and will be with him. Um, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talks about how it will happen in the blinking of an eye and how we will get 
uh, new spiritual bodies and whatever that means. But when Jesus comes, we will go up with him immediately. So as we uh, look back at this week and last, and we think one, one more time back to this framework of ready, set, go. So the ready part, we learn that there will be a great tribulation to go along with the revealing of the Antichrist. And Jesus says, okay, you need to be ready for this. And then today we see that after this tribulation, there will be earth-shattering signs of his coming. In fact, the entirety of creation will appear to be crumbling around us. And that's the time that we should get set for his return. And then he'll come in power and glory and we'll get to go with him in the rapture. And that's the big picture that Jesus is really trying to get across in these passages. But the question is, what do we do with this information? How does it affect us in our day-to-day lives? And this is one of those passages where it can be difficult to discern in application, right? It seems like this is all talking about future events, um, and we don't know if these events are going to happen tomorrow or a thousand years from now, so how do we live in the light of these truths? Well, I want to call out three applications that we can take from this that can help us out today. The first application is that Jesus' words here are really a call to discipleship. And I think this is actually a pretty big deal. You might have noticed that this week and last week, I haven't really delved into a lot of specifics of eschatology. Um, I haven't mentioned anything about specific future dates or, or detailed timelines. I really haven't done any of that. Um, I haven't showed you any, any charts or graphs, you know, no, no arrows or, or symbols or anything like that. Um, I haven't taken any of these events and, and tried to align them with like headlines from today's newspaper. I haven't, I haven't done any of that. Why haven't I done that? Well, the reason is because often when we study eschatology, I, I think that kind of tends to be our default. It's where we like to go. As humans, we, we naturally, we just want to figure something out, right? We love solving the puzzle. We want to know. And from my own experience, I, I grew up in the church, and as I was growing up, any time that eschatology was taught, whether it was from the pulpit or whether it was in, in Sunday school or wherever, that was the kind of focus that it was given. It was all about figuring out the puzzle, putting the pieces together. And as a result, there were lots of charts with arrows But the problem was that, at least for me, it got disconnected from my life in the here and now. There was really nothing I could take from from that teaching to become more Christ-like. So I want to be clear, though. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with trying to understand the details of the end times. It can be a very good exercise to study and determine your views on the timing of the rapture, for example. And yes, I do have views on the millennium and the tribulation, the rapture, and so on, and I've taken the time to to study and and come to my own conclusions. But what I want to suggest is is rather that when you dig into the details of eschatology, don't lose sight of the forest for the trees. What do I mean by that? Well, preparation for Christ's return isn't about calculating the date of Armageddon, and I don't think it's about... um, trying to link world events to fulfillment of biblical prophecies. Preparation for Christ's return is rather about letting our spiritual lights shine by bearing the fruit of the Spirit. It's about being faithful and staying the course. And I believe that if we can do that, then the details will eventually take care of themselves. 
So my encouragement to you is to let Jesus' return serve as motivation for you to grow more Christ-like. And if that includes delving deeper into the particulars of eschatology, then I say, great, dig in. But when the pursuit of them ceases to form your heart and your mind and your will to make you more Christ-like, and it simply becomes that intellectual exercise, that puzzle, I, I fear at that point we maybe have lost the point. Okay, so a second takeaway from today's text is that this really serves as a call to hope. This may not be a surprise to you, but we live in a world filled with trouble. And Jesus said that we can expect great tribulation. You might say it's going to get worse before it gets better. But as followers of Christ, we have a hope that endures. We know that Jesus is coming back. I love what the book of Revelation tells us. He says that Jesus, it says that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Now, what a great promise to live into, to have hope in. And so with that frame of mind, I just wanted to share a quote that John Calvin wrote about this many hundreds of years ago. And he said, whenever we perceive the church scattered by the wiles of Satan or torn in pieces by the cruelty of the ungodly or disturbed by false doctrines or tossed about by storms, let us learn to turn our eyes to this gathering of the elect. So no matter what happens in this life or or in this world, no matter what trials or tribulations come our way, don't ever forget we have that hope that in the end God wins. And then a third takeaway, a third application for us today is that this really should serve as a call to evangelism. One day, Jesus will come back to judge. And for those of us who follow Christ, it's a day to look forward to. But for the lost, it's a, it's a day to fear. And that should give us motivation, therefore, to tell others so that they might be spared in eternity apart from God. And so when you read a text like this, you need to remember that these are real events which really will will happen and that the lost among us are real people with a real prospect of spending an eternity in hell. We know Jesus is coming back one day. We're going to stand before judgment. And really that thought ought to motivate us to spread the good news to the world around us. Okay, I'm going to ask the band to come up as I close this morning. And I just want us to take a little bit of time to think about which of these applications meets, meets us where we're at. So maybe your walk with Christ isn't what it should be. Maybe there's some repentance that you need to do. Maybe there's some following that you need to do. Maybe you aren't following Jesus at all. And I would encourage you to consider that today. Maybe you have allowed the absolute craziness of this world to erode your hope. Man, that's easy to do. And you let that fear kind of get into your life and then the next thing you know, it's, it's taken over. Or maybe God has pricked your conscience about evangelism and he's saying, hey, you need to take a step in that direction. I don't know what it is for you, but I would urge you to listen to what God is telling you. And I would urge you to take action today. So I don't know if you need to go tell a friend, hey, guess what? God told me that I need to work in this area. Will you help me? Maybe you need to go talk to one of the pastors and say, I know I need to work to work in this area. Can you help me? We have small groups. We have community groups. There's a perfect way to let them know to help, let them help you. I would say do what it takes to heed Jesus' words now because 
We just don't know when we might run out of time. Would you pray with me? God, we we praise you. We praise you for your words. We praise you that we can read your scripture. We can learn about you. We can learn about the end times and what is to come. And God, we just confess that that we lose our way sometimes. We don't follow, follow you like we should. We don't have that hope within us all the time. We don't evangelize like we should. And so I just confess those sins to you corporately, and I would pray, help us, God, to commit to repentance, to commit to growing, to commit to uh, having that urgency in our faith life that this text really speaks to us about. God, help us, and I ask these words in your name. Amen.